I know this has already been done twice this morning, but I got to get in on this party too. He is risen. He is risen. risen. risen Amen. Jesus has risen from the dead. We come this morning to bring him glory. Please bow with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would work in us this morning for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with rejoicing for those who have placed their trust in Jesus by your grace and for those here who haven't. Lord, we pray you'd open up their eyes to see the beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus, to be convicted of their sins, to put their faith in Jesus. And Lord, I ask that you'd help me to preach faithfully this morning, to preach what is true here in your word, to preach clearly that we might understand your word. And Lord, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would change us through what we hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on the pages of the Bible, we find testimony and we find evidence that Jesus died, that he was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. And Jesus Christ, crucified and, and risen, it's not merely an annual message that we bring out on Good Friday and Sunday. This is the message. It's our everyday message. If you come here next Sunday, which I hope you do, you'll hear the same message preached. You'll hear us singing about the same things, about the death of Jesus and his resurrection. You'll you'll see us rejoicing in the truth and the beauty of, of Jesus risen from the dead. You'll hear us praying in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. This is the Christian message. The death and the resurrection of Jesus, that is our hope. It's the hope we profess as Christians. It's the only hope that we have. And because the tomb of Jesus was empty on that Sunday morning, the throne in heaven is presently occupied. Empty tomb, occupied throne, Christians rejoicing. And we rejoice that because our Savior is risen, that one day, hopefully soon, He is returning See, the resurrection calls us to look back to that moment in history when power and salvation and forgiveness before the throne of God was secured for anyone who would place their trust in Jesus. The resurrection calls for us to consider our lives presently. There is not a problem in your life that the resurrection of Jesus cannot address. There is no trial that you're experiencing, no sorrow that you know, no sin that you are struggling with, no issue that you are facing that the resurrection of Jesus does not address. Because the hope that we have in Jesus is just as He was resurrected, so we will be when He comes. And so we turn our hope to Jesus. You see, the calendars of Christian churches in accordance with the commands of God's Word and the pages of the Bible have Sunday mornings marked off. That's the Christian calendar. Sunday morning marked off to be set apart from any other day of the week, any other time of the year. Sunday mornings are for Christians. A corporate weekly celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the first Christians began assembling on the first day of the week. Sunday morning. They were Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath. Sunday wasn't like it is here in our society where Chick-fil-A is closed and we have time off and it's a time of recreation. Sunday was a work day. And those first believers, they got up on Sunday morning and they assembled as a local church proclaiming Jesus Christ as risen from the dead. And then they went to work. 
That's what Sunday was like back then. And in that same pattern, in accordance with Scriptures, we gather on Sunday morning to proclaim the good news to all nations that Jesus Christ is who He said He was. He has risen from the dead. And it's on Sunday morning that we come together as an assembly, as a church, to turn to God's Word for hope. That's what we do this morning. We come to be reminded of the hope that is found only in Jesus. And if you've come this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, we are, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we're, we're glad that you've joined with us this morning. And there's a question that I would want you to consider in our time here this morning. How does the story of Easter become the story of your life? That's what Romans 6 addresses, how the story of Easter can become the story of your life. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to consider and reflect on how this event 2,000 years ago, these events of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, how those events make a powerful difference in your life today. How they make a difference in your Christian growth, in your fight against sin today. That's what we're going to consider this morning as we turn to the book of Romans. Go ahead and turn with me now, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 6. If you want to take that pew Bible right in front of you, open up to Romans chapter 6. That's the best way to stay engaged during this sermon. If you turn to page 942 in that pew Bible, page 942, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Last year on the field, we did Romans 6, 1 through 5, part 2 of our Easter series. You had to wait a year for it. Here we are. Romans 6, 6 through 11 on page 942. Let me read through all of this passage, but I do want to say if you're using that pew Bible this morning and you don't own a Bible, take that Bible as our gift to you. That is not merely an Easter special. We offer that every Sunday morning. We want to give you a copy of God's Word to read and to consider that you might know who God is and what He's done in Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, the main idea that I want us to see in this passage, if you're taking notes this morning, here's the main idea. In Christ, we have been freed from sin to live for God's glory. In Christ, we have been freed from sin to live for God's glory. Now, now Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He was an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus, having seen the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And you can read more about his testimony of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. It'd be a great place to read later today. He saw an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus, which is important because Christianity, it's based on facts. Some people misunderstand when they hear the word faith. They think, well, you Christians just close your eyes and choose to believe something really positive. No, rather we trust, we put our faith in what is factually true. 
Jesus has risen from the dead, proving he is who he said he was. The Apostle Paul, an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus. And his story of how he became a follower of Jesus is an important piece of evidence of the Christian faith. I mean, how else can you explain the Apostle Paul turning from being one who persecuted Christians to being one who proclaimed the message of the gospel, the very message he was trying to stamp out? There's only one explanation for the change in his life. It's that he indeed saw the risen Lord Jesus, he believed, and his life was forever transformed. He was an apostle, he was handpicked by Jesus, he was trained by Jesus himself, and Paul instructed the first churches. He did this often by writing letters. We have 13 letters written by him contained in the New Testament. And here in the book of Romans, we have a letter written to the church in Rome. And some Bible scholars refer to this, I love this description, the greatest letter ever written, the book of Romans. Whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, you want to know more about the Christian faith, read the greatest letter ever written, the book of Romans. We're going to get a small taste of it this morning, and hopefully that encourages our appetite to know more of who God is and how He's revealed Himself in His Word. The first part of the letter of Romans, it deals with how you are saved, how it is that you become a Christian. Paul spends five chapters addressing how you are saved, pointing to God's salvation, the salvation that comes from His judgment for sin, only coming by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Chapter 6, it kind of takes a turn, and it starts to address how you are to live as a Christian. So how, how do you live after you have been saved? In these verses in chapter 6, Paul explains how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ makes a powerful difference in the daily lives of Christians. So what we read here in chapter 6, it helps us understand that saving faith in Jesus goes beyond merely having knowledge about the Bible. It goes beyond merely having knowledge about Jesus. Having saving faith in Jesus goes beyond merely being sprinkled as an infant, as so many in this country have been baptized and attending church growing up. Those things don't save you. Saving faith is only found in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, turning to Him and placing your faith in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's what we see here in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. As we make our way through this passage this morning, I want us to see three ways we have been changed. Three ways we've been changed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The first way we've been changed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, verses 6 and 7, we've been freed from sin. We put our faith in Jesus. The first way we've been changed, we have been freed from sin. Now, looking back to verse 1 helps us understand the context of this passage. In verse 1 of chapter 6, the Apostle Paul starts off asking two questions. What shall we say then? And then question 2, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, Paul would often write questions as he wrote, and it was a way of anticipating objections that would come to his preaching of the gospel. Some of the Jewish leaders in, in Paul's day, they would hear Paul 
preach the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, and they would think that his message would lead to a disregard for God's law, to a disregard for the commandments of God, that a message of grace would grant too much liberty, and therefore that, that Paul must be mistaken on the gospel. Now, Paul anticipated that some would wrongly reason, if God is gracious and forgives sin, why not just continue on in sin? Why not just live every day sinning and enjoying sin and then just pray a prayer before you lay down on your pillow at night and ask God to forgive you and then pick back up with sin the next day? Paul understood some would wrongly reason in that manner as he preached a gospel of grace, of free forgiveness to all who repent and believe. And he gives the answer there in verse 2 as well as in verse 6 as to why that is wrong reasoning. He says there in verse 2 and verse 6, those who put their faith in Jesus will not continue to live in sin because you've died to sin. The power of sin has been broken in your life. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The main point there in verses 6 and 7 is that those who have been crucified with Christ are no longer slaves to sin. You've been set free from sin. You live in a new way. Free from sin meaning you no longer enjoy sin. You repent of your sin, meaning you turn away from that sin. You see visible fruit and evidence in your life of saying no to sin, walking away from temptation. And when you find yourself in sin, just as we did this morning, as Daniel Cox led us in a prayer of confession, that we would confess those sins to God in the name of Jesus. Now notice that we see the word sin in the singular form here. Not a single time do we see the word in the plural in verses 6 through 11. So we need to understand the difference between sins in the plural and sin in the singular. Sins in the plural, so let's, let's understand this difference here. It refers to, to actions, thoughts, and attitudes opposed to God's word and His will. Opposed to His commands. So lying, envying, coveting, adultery, stealing, those are sins in the plural. We could keep going. Lots and lots of sins. But think about the difference in sin and the singular. On the other hand, it's, it's not merely bad things we do, but sin in the singular is the condition of the human heart. Sin in the, in the singular refers to slavery, to sin, the condition that you and I were born into. You see, as we've been studying through the book of Genesis, we see that this condition of sin, it came through Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, of turning away from God and rejecting His love and breaking His commands. We understand that condition of sin has been passed on to every human being that was born except for Jesus, the one who was fully God and fully man. Paul teaches elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we're all born under the power of sin. He describes it as being dead in your sin, spiritually dead, completely under the control of sin, sinful desires dominating you. Your life outside of Christ, it's 
often pictured as this kind of free and fun life. And sometimes I'll talk to people who, who don't know Jesus, who haven't put their faith in Jesus, and they'll ask the question, well, why would I want to submit my life to a set of rules and regulations? That doesn't sound like fun. It sounds like it's restricting. I like my independence. I like my freedom. I want to live in light of what I understand to be right. It's just a common problem that we see sinfully exposed in our culture, that human beings understand themselves wrongly to be their own authority, live the way you want to live, live by what you think is fun and free and right. But Romans chapter 6 helps us understand there is no freedom in a life outside of Christ. It's, it's a hoax. It's a trick to think like that. All that exists outside of Christ is slavery to sin. You know, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you have a testimony, a story of God's saving grace in your life. You have already died to the power of sin over you. It's your present reality. It brings us comfort and assurance to know what God has already done in our lives through Jesus Christ. That at the moment that God saved you, at the moment of your conversion, when you repented of your sin, I put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were no longer under the ruling power of sin. Some people try to manage their sin, thinking if they can just manage their sin, and as long as I kind of do some good things to kind of counter the bad things I've done, then I'll be okay. I even had a conversation with a friend this week who didn't know Jesus, and he told me he thought he'd be okay, that even though he didn't believe in God, he was baptized as a kid, and he tried to live the right way, and I told him that's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not what you can do to save yourself. It's not how you can manage your sin. Christians understand we can't manage our sin. We must die to sin. If you call yourself a Christian, therefore you've died to sin. You must not live to sin. That's the logic that the Apostle Paul presents. Because you're a new person, the old self has died. And that word old there, old self, it doesn't refer to old in years. It refers to old in condition. Old meaning useless, worthless. The old self, Christian, that's who you were before you put your faith in Jesus. You're no longer that person. You no longer are enslaved to the sin that you used to gladly give yourself over to. You no longer enjoy the sin that you once used to find life in, that you once used to Instagram about and brag about and look forward to on Friday at the end of the workday and talk about Monday morning at the water cooler with your employees or in class at school. You no longer live and find joy in light of that sin because you've been set free from that. You're, that's your old self. It's who you were before you put your faith in Jesus. Well, what happened to that old self? Good news. The Apostle Paul says that old self was crucified with Christ. Again, notice there in verse 6 the phrase, crucified with him. We read Galatians chapter 2 this morning. We see Paul using the same language there in Galatians chapter 2, being crucified with Christ, and that we now live with Christ. Paul says that the old self crucified with Jesus. Well, where were you when Jesus died on that hill in Calvary? Well, none of us were there physically. Wasn't possible, right? over 2,000 years ago. But Christian, there's a reality or spiritual reality. If you put your faith in Jesus, spiritually you were there. Your sins were paid in full at that moment. That's what he's saying. You were crucified with 
Jesus. Your sins dealt with in full on that Friday that Jesus died on the cross. Some Bible scholars refer to this as co-crucifixion. You were crucified with Jesus. The purpose of co-crucifixion, simply put, crucifixion results in death. You don't survive Roman crucifixion. Everyone crucified on a Roman cross, they died, including Jesus. That's good news for us because it means your old self died and there's a new self. The purpose of crucifixion with Christ is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, which means you are no longer under the control of sin. You're not the person that you once were. Hallelujah. Praise God. He's changed you. He's transformed your life to live and to love like Jesus. All by His grace, you have been saved. You see, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, it was a death for sinners. It was a payment That's what was happening on the cross. There was an exchange taking place, a payment, an offering for sin to satisfy God's wrath and His judgment against sin. What that means, Christian, is that the death of Jesus Christ accomplished something in your life. Christian, it set you free from sin, something you couldn't possibly do on your own. The thing that you need most, Jesus accomplished in your life on that good Friday. As surely As Jesus died on the cross, so did your old self, our confidence found in Jesus. Now, you may wonder, you know, if you've been set free from sin, why do you face temptation? Why do you face even strong temptation at times? Why do you still struggle with sin as a believer and desires that are common there with the old self? Well, certainly we understand perfection. Perfect sinlessness is not possible this side of glory. That's why we have prayers of confession. That's why we're told in 1 John to confess our sins. That He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What Paul's talking about here is not dying. He's not talking, talking about dying to the presence of sin in our life. He's talking about dying to the power of sin. This side of glory, Christians will experience the presence of sin in us, around us. Even here in Paul's writing, we can understand that sin continues to be a threat to Christians, which is why he says, don't continue in that sin. But our present reality as Christians is that we have been set free from the power of sin over us. And it only gets better. One day when we go to be with Christ, or when He returns, we will finally be free from the presence of sin. We will no longer experience it anymore. Its effects, death will be done, cancer will be over with, sinning against God no longer, tears wiped away, mourning and sadness forever gone. The presence of sin totally done away with. Christian, don't get too comfortable here. Charlotte is not the promised land. There is a land that awaits us, a land where the presence of sin will be no more, all because of what Jesus accomplished on that hill in Calvary. And may we have this living hope on our minds this morning because we have a living Savior. Well, having been freed from the power of sin, you are free to live for something new. That's what we see in verses 8 
through 10. A second way that the death and resurrection of Jesus changes us in verses 8 through 10, we live for God's glory. It's a second way the death and resurrection of Jesus changes us. We live for God's glory. The focus in verse 8, it shifts from dying with Jesus to living with Jesus. And Paul helps us to see who we are in Christ in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. So if you've repented of your sin and put your faith in, in Jesus, you share in the death of Jesus, and you also share in the resurrection of Jesus. You share in new life. So the death of Jesus, it's a way forward for those who put their faith in Him, a way forward to new life. So the logic flows here. If we've died with Christ, we will also live with Him. Now, this reference to, to living with Him, it's certainly speaking of the eternal future for Christians. We will live with Christ forever in the next life. Our future is secure. No one can pluck us from the hands of Jesus. If you put your faith in Him, you belong to Him now and forevermore. But this verse, I think it also speaks to our lives here on earth. So Christians will live with Christ. In other words, we will walk in holiness. Holiness is the power of Christ in us to please God, to honor Him, to obey His commandments. As we follow Jesus here on earth by faith, we live with Christ we have the promise that Christ is with us always. His Spirit is inside of us, leading us to live a life of worshiping God, a life of obedience to God's commandments, a life of loving God, and a life of loving our neighbor just as Christ did. And verse 9 provides beautiful assurance of the hope that we will live with Jesus now and forevermore. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. We've been in the book of Genesis for quite some time. We've seen a lot of death in the book of Genesis. It started with Adam and Eve sinning against God in the Garden of Eden. Through their sin, death came into the world. We saw the flood, lots of death that came, God's wrath and judgment being poured out against sin. We've seen Noah die, Sarah die, Abraham die. Spoiler alert, we're not through the book yet, but at the end of Genesis, Joseph dies. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses, who narrated Genesis, he dies. But in the New Testament, things take a turn. We see death in the New Testament Gospels, the most important death, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying. But in the New Testament Gospels, at the end of the New Testament Gospels, there's not death. There's resurrection. There's new life. The story of the Bible takes an important turn that you cannot miss. Don't miss this. The resurrection of Jesus is how the Gospels end. And the rest of the New Testament looks back on that moment to explain and to proclaim and to teach who God is and what He's done in Jesus and therefore how it is that we must live as His people. Well, have you considered how important it is that there is no grave of Jesus that his followers can visit? Have you considered how important it is that the tomb was empty on that Sunday morning, that they never found the body of Jesus because there was no body to find? And in fact, hundreds of people saw the risen Lord Jesus, eyewitnesses to his resurrection. 
if you consider the difference between Christianity and other world religions, it is common in other world religions to visit graves of religious leaders, to have a pilgrimage to visit the grave. So you can visit the tomb of Muhammad. There's a grave. You're a Muslim. You can visit there in the city of Medina. You can see what's purported to be remains of Buddha. In all sorts of of Buddhist monasteries, they have relics. They have remains. They purport this is the body of Buddha, even reported there in East Los Angeles to have some of his teeth that you can go and see. The tomb of Confucius, you can visit that in the Shandong province of China. But if you consider the followers of Jesus have no grave to visit. Now, sure, you can go to Jerusalem and some tour guide will sell you a tour and they'll tell you that was the tomb that Jesus was buried in. Maybe it was, but there's nothing in there. It's empty. The tomb was empty. Have you considered that indeed because there is no tomb, Jesus has followers? He has followers because the tomb is empty. At the center of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. We call it Good Friday, Jesus dying on a Friday. I was talking to my kids at our devotion time. Well, how is that good? A sad, sorrowful day. The only innocent one, the one, only one who perfectly obeyed God and perfectly honored everyone he came into contact with, he was spit upon and scourged, mocked, suffered and died on the cross. How is that good? Well, we see how it was good to what happened on Sunday because he got up from the dead just like he said he would proving that his payment for sin by dying on the cross was acceptable to God and sufficient to forgive every one of your sins. You see, for the second time in this passage, Paul says, we know that. He said it once there in verse 6 at the beginning. He says it again here at the beginning of verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead. Christians know that Jesus rose from the dead. We don't say that just because it sounds nice to say. We don't say that because it just sounds nice in a song and it makes me feel warm and fuzzy and helps me be optimistic about life. It's just a nice, comfortable thing to say. Don't hear that. We actually say we believe in the resurrection. We know that Jesus has risen from the dead. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you are not a Christian. I don't know what you mean if you say that you're a Christian and you're not really sure if Jesus got up from the dead. You're not really sure that it it matters. Where's your hope? It means you just have a lot of stories that you might look to to help you live a better life. But Jesus did not come to be an ethics teacher. He came to die and to save, to forgive us of our sins, to set us free, that we too might be raised to walk in newness of life. Everything we believe as Christians rests upon the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 9, it's a beautiful verse of assurance. Jesus rose from the dead, and He will never die again. Think about how powerful death is. Everyone dies. Death is the great equalizer. All people die. Old people die. Young people die. Rich people die. Poor people die. CEOs of companies die. Homeless people die. If you have a lot of money, you won't take it with you. You will die. If you don't have much money, can't take it with you anyways, you will die. People in every nation die. Every ethnicity dies. No one will avoid death 
unless Jesus returns first. No scientist, no medical doctor has ever been able to come up with a cure for death, nor will they. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk might be able to finance a trip to space, and if they're looking for their next thing to finance, they'll never be able to finance a way to come back from the dead when they die. They will never figure out a way to escape death. Jesus is the only one. He's the only one to die and overcome death to never die again. The whole book of Romans, the whole Bible, all of the Christian testimony and witness stands or falls on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, his death was just a normal one, just like the two other guys who died beside him on the cross. He was just like the rest of humanity. Now, it's true that we see other people in the Bible who were dead and got up from the dead. Most notably, John chapter 11, Lazarus. He really died. He was buried. His dead body placed in a tomb. Jesus came and raised him from the dead. But what's different is that Lazarus went on to eventually die again. It's the difference of what we see in the Bible. The Apostle Paul says here in verse 9, Jesus rose from the dead. and He will never die again. The result there in verse 9 and 10 is that death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus, the Son of God, he came into the world to die, to die for sinners. He willingly laid his life down to die on the cross, to take the punishment for our sin as a substitute in our place. It's in that sense that Jesus died to sin. That means he, he took our sin, all of it, on himself, the innocent one, perfectly sinless. He took our sin and he put it to death once for all. Here's what that means. It means nothing needs to be added to the death of Jesus on the cross. His death never needs to be repeated like the Old Testament sacrifices were. He is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. Therefore, the death of Jesus was sufficient to pay for every sin of those who repent and believe. Death did not get the last word when it came to Jesus. In rising from the dead on the third day, Christ demonstrated that He defeated death, the only one to ever do that, which means Christ defeated every sin. Sin and death no longer have dominion over Him, and the assurance found there is that sin and death no longer have dominion over you if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus rose from the dead for the glory of the Father, you too, through faith in Him, have been raised to walk in newness of life. You no longer continue on in a pattern of sin that's not who you are. You've been made new to live for the glory of God, which leads us to the conclusion of this passage in verse 11. In verse 11, we see a third way the death and resurrection of Jesus changes us. We consider who we are in Christ. It's verse 11, a third way the death and resurrection of Jesus changes us. We consider who we are in Christ. Verse 11 is the application of this passage. If you look at the structure, verses 6 through, through 10 reflect on what we must know important truths that we must know as Christians. Verse 11 takes a turn 
what we must do. So we see a command. This is only the second command so far in the book of Romans. So five chapters of just going on and on and on about who God is, who Jesus is, who we are, sinners, in need of forgiveness, how it is that you're saved. Verse 11, we see a command. And this command helps us to consider how your life, Christian, should be different today as a result of that day over 2,000 years ago when Jesus got up from the dead. What we must do, it begins with thinking. We must think differently. Paul says if you put your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, you will live in a new way of thinking, with a new perspective on life. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus, it reminds Christians the mastery of sin has been broken in our lives. His death and resurrection has already changed you, and therefore, you must think and live in light of this new life. The most important word in verse 11 is consider. Consider means to count or to reckon. It's an accounting metaphor of calculating. So it's it's what category do you account for yourself in? If you're a Christian, your life has been placed in the category of dead to sin and alive in Christ. Account for yourself in that manner. Yes, in this life as Christians, we will battle with temptation. We will battle sinful thoughts and words, sinful attitudes and actions, yet we are to account for ourselves as being dead to sin. In this life, we're still in a battle, but the difference is that in Christ, you have been freed from sin to say no to sin. Christian, the next time you're tempted to sin, consider who you are in Christ. You need to count yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. I believe, because it's here in Romans, that will make a tremendous difference in our lives as Christians. I wonder if your struggle with sin is that you're not considering who you are in Jesus. I wonder if it's that you're allowing and accommodating sin in your life. I wonder if that you're just kind of reasoning, it's okay, everyone messes up, everyone's impatient, everyone struggles with anger, uh, every, everyone struggles with sin, it's okay, like I'm not that bad of a person, I'll feel better about myself, again, if I do some better things, or after leaving church, hopefully I'll feel better about myself. I wonder if we, if our problem is that we don't count ourselves as dead to sin and claim the power that is ours in Jesus. We're dead to sin, risen to new life. In other words, a good reason to say no to sin, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I've been saved. My life is not my own. I've been purchased by a price the blood of Jesus Christ. His Spirit lives inside of me. What Old Testament believers look forward to has happened in my life. What a time to be alive. Faith in Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, causing us to persevere, bringing about spiritual fruit in us, changing our desires, convicting us when we do sin so that we taste displeasure with sin, growing our desire to honor God. The next time you're tempted, consider Jesus died for your sin 
And he died to free you from slavery to sin. That very sin you are being tempted to commit, Jesus died for that. Jesus has purchased a death in your life to not live enslaved to that sin. You don't have to give yourself over to the sin that you were once enslaved to. Your fighting against sin is fighting from the victory of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. And that makes all the difference in your Christian walk this side of heaven. That's how you live in the power of the resurrection. See, some people wrongly think that Christianity is mainly about things you do. Get baptized, go to church. If you're a Christian, you should get baptized. If you're a Christian, you should go to church. If not, you're in disobedience, right? But those things don't make you a Christian. Going to church isn't going to make you a Christian, but Christians go to church in obedience to God and to His Word. Don't get the order wrong. Some people think Christianity is mainly about things you do, but, but Paul's reasoning here for why a Christian wants continue to live in sin, that's not who you are. It's not who you've made to be in Jesus. If you've been freed from sin, how can you continue to live in it? If you've been free from sin, don't go back to it. Don't go back to living in the old ways. If you've repented of your sin and turned to Jesus to put your faith in Him, the old self is gone. You've been freed from the power of sin. Don't follow the old way of living. Don't give in to the old passions. You are free to not live like that any longer. Just as sure as Jesus died on the cross and got up from the dead, you have been set free from sin to live for the glory of God. Well, Christian, think about something in your life right now that needs to change. Really, there's not a new message we preach on Easter. As pastors, we have to remind ourselves we're not here to wow people with some radical new way to view the resurrection on Sunday. We just want to preach that good old gospel truth. But I do hope that you and I could look back to Easter 2022 and remember a moment that God did something in our life. We come here to be changed. We come here to meet with God for Him to change us. I wonder if you could think about something in your life right now, Christian, that needs to change. Maybe it's impatience in your life. Maybe it's an area of anger in your life. Maybe it's hurtful words that you find yourself using far too often. Maybe it's a pattern of lust you're giving yourself over to, selfishness, drunkenness, gossip, envy, bitterness. There's something. For humble and honest, every one of us, there's something we can think about. Think about that sin right now. And consider now, think about the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Follow what verse 11 says, consider who you are in Christ. Count yourself as as dead to sin. Count yourself as alive in Jesus. Confess that sin and ask the Lord for strength to say no to sin. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. Would you trust God for more grace in your life? Turn away from sin, Christian. Live for the glory of God. As we come every Sunday to remember the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, every Sunday may we humbly consider our lives and how it is we might ask God to change us. That's how we live in the power of the resurrection. Are we to continue in sin? 
By no means. The gospel teaches us those who have been crucified with Christ, we have died to sin, set free from sin. And by the power of His resurrection, we have new life that we live for the glory of God. This life we now live in the flesh. We live by the power of the resurrection. And may the resurrection of Jesus give us hope today as we look forward to that day when we're finally free from the presence of sin, sin and death no more. And to the grave, what will we sing? Christ, He lives. Christ, He lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him. And we will rise to meet the Lord. There, sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would draw our minds to the power of the cross and the empty tomb. And Lord, as we even consider hurtful ways within us, areas of disobedience and sin that dishonor you, may we not just merely dwell on the guilt of sin, but may we dwell on the power over sin you've freely given us through the death of Jesus, that we've been crucified with him. And so we ask for your strength and your power to live more in ways that please you and that honor you and bring you glory. Lord, we ask this morning that you would refresh us anew in the power of the resurrection, that we might live a godly and sober life for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.